Phil here. The Wind is an independent podcast made possible by listener support. Some episodes, like this one, take a lot of time and resources. So if you want to help me keep making this thing, become a patron. You can sign up at patreon.com slash the wind. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Make sure to check out the prologue uh, to get the gist of the show, and then feel free to start at the beginning or click around on whatever looks interesting. This episode includes strong language and, more importantly, graphic descriptions of suicide. So make sure that you're in the right place for that, and take care. Nineteen eighty-five, two days before Christmas, Sparks, Nevada. A couple of young men walk up the driveway of a standard suburban home in a standard American housing development. Behind them, willow trees stand dormant in the neighbors' lawns. Cul-de-sac clapboard two-car garage. James Vance and Ray Belknap step into Ray's house. They're 20 and 18 years old, respectively. Both have dropped out of high school and for the past few years have been working, then quitting menial jobs. Ray lives with his parents, and this evening they head for Ray's bedroom. Not far away is the house of James' mom. Phyllis Vance has been worried about James. He seems to spend a lot of time drinking and smoking, messing around, complaining about work, going nowhere fast. And instead of coming to church, he seems to worship heavy metal. She's convinced that his depression and disaffected worldview stem from that music. And she's convinced him of that a couple of times, too. At one point, James got rid of all of his metal albums down at Recycled Records, swearing off the music and its influence. But the prohibition never lasts. It's the thing that seems to make the most sense. His closest friend is a metalhead too, and for James' 20th birthday, Ray begins to replenish his record collection. As a gift, he begins with a classic. Stained Class, the 1978 album by Judas Priest, which they put on the turntable this evening. The needle circumnavigates the black vinyl. Heavy drums chugging guitar, Rob Halford theatrically throws his voice to the sky. Carefree and powerful, it's a sound that seems to lift them, too. After a few beers, smoking some weed, James and Ray get up, and they start thrashing around the bedroom. They mosh around the thumping record player in a sort of daze. One of them locks the bedroom door, opens the window, and they climb out into the winter night. Ray carries a 12-gauge shotgun. (laughs) 
The two climb the fence and navigate a web of backyards and alleys the way only suburban kids can. An intimate knowledge of all the shortcuts and forgotten spaces haphazardly built into their forwardly normal-looking world. A world, to them, that has become increasingly suffocating and hollow. Eventually, they reach a neighborhood church, and they drop into a small playground in the back. They both sit down on one of those old metal, spinning, human-propelled merry-go-rounds. Still hyped up, adrenaline rushing, Ray puts the shotgun to his throat. He says, I sure fucked my life up. And then he pulls the trigger. Ray dies instantly. His body slumps and James pulls the gun from a puddle of his best friend's blood. A weeping willow sways quietly in the breeze above the churchyard, and a dog begins to bark. James screams for it to shut up, and he puts the slippery gun to his chin, shaking, and he too pulls the trigger. Days later, James wakes up. I'm Phil Corbett, and this is The Wind. Judas Priest on Trial, Part 1. The Wind. With Phil Corbett. James Vance had somehow survived the suicide attempt. He and his mother contacted me, and uh, they said, are you a Christian attorney? I said, well, I, I'm an attorney, and I am a Christian. I'm, I'm a Christian who happens to be an attorney. And uh, they said, well, we want, we want to hire you. And, and I thought, oh, okay, is this a crank call? And I said, why, you want to sue the devil? And they said, we think so. This is Timothy Post. Timothy Post. I'm a sole practicing attorney here in Reno. That call from the Vance family was in 1986. But Post still has an office in Reno. A small commercial building filled with Abraham Lincoln memorabilia. And he sits behind a huge desk. He says he took the meeting with James and his mom, Phyllis Vance, but immediately he was skeptical. They said, we want to sue a heavy metal satanic rock group because of the influence, the ideology, the lifestyle that uh, James had uh, experienced with them influenced him into trying to take his own life. And... I, I turned him down. I said, no, you got a thing called the First Amendment, free speech. The legal part of this story fully hinges on the First Amendment. So to lay the groundwork, I'd like to read it in full. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the whole thing. 
Since the ratification of the Bill of Rights, there have been many cases in the U.S. Supreme Court that have built on this amendment and changed it in key ways. The main exception that most people know about is that it's illegal to falsely yell fire in a crowded theater. This phrase comes from a non-binding dictum by Oliver Wendell Holmes in a 1919 Supreme Court decision, Schneck v. United States. Summarizing here, Holmes claimed that if speech creates a clear and present danger, it is not protected. Another landmark case in First Amendment rights was in 1969, Brandenburg v. Ohio. In short, it said speech that incites unlawful action is not protected by the First Amendment. The Brandenburg test is still used today, deciding if A, the speech is directed to incite or produce imminent lawless action, and B, the speech is likely to incite or produce such action. Courts have found time and again that the speech of artists, no matter how violent or subversive or political, is almost always covered by the First Amendment. And attorney Timothy Post knew this. And I said, I don't think you're going to make it very far, really. And they talked me into it. I think back now, the, the case started out as lyrics that uh, incited violence. It, you don't have free speech. If, if you foment uh, violence. At the time, it was apparent to me uh, that the case was not going to be successful, uh, that it would ultimately be dismissed because the lyrics were protected by the First Amendment. This is Ken McKenna. Yeah, I'm uh, Ken McKenna, attorney, and I represented the family of Ray Belknap, the, uh, one of the young boys uh, who committed suicide after listening to the Judas Priest album, Stained Class. While the Vance family was hiring Timothy Post, Ray Belknap's family hired their own legal counsel. The purpose in filing the case initially was to just make a point uh, to create um, public awareness that these type of lyrics were existing, that there did seem to be a causal connection, and that Morally, ethically, the industry should be, you know, held to task uh, for what they were doing, knowing that legally they would not be held accountable uh, for the lyrics. This was about the time that, I think it was, wasn't it Ozzy Osbourne's case, uh, had just been dismissed, um, and the court had said, no, you can't make a connection between suicidal, intentional lyrics and someone committing suicide. Around this time, another kid in California had committed suicide after listening to Ozzy Osbourne. The song was called Suicide Solution. And though on the surface that might sound like a smoking gun, when you read them, the lyrics seem to refer to alcohol as a suicide solution as in a liquid that kills the drinker. Wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker. Suicide is slow with liquor. 
Osborne says the song was a response to the death of ACDC frontman Bon Scott, who died a tragic alcohol-related death at a young age. Ruling in favor of Osborne, the judge dismissed the case, and the precedent was a clear judicial speed bump in the burgeoning movement to regulate the lyrics of heavy metal, punk, and hip-hop. And also, it seemed to highlight the underlying weaknesses of that movement. What seems like a suicidal anthem to some is an unlikely anti-drinking ballad to others. But what the Judas Priest case had that the others didn't was James Vance. I took the case eventually because my client talked me into it. I said, well, you know, there's something here that other cases don't have. It's a survivor. It was very unlikely that James survived the attempt. And just a warning, it gets pretty graphic here. James watched Ray shoot himself. James picked up the gun. Uh, It was covered in blood. He put a shell in it. He stood, and he couldn't reach the trigger. His arms weren't as long as Ray's. And so he had to kind of lean his head back to reach the trigger And what that did is when he pulled the trigger, he blew his face off underneath his eyes. His nerves, his slippery handle on the gun, divine intervention, whatever it was, the buckshot blasted up through his chin and missed his eyes and brain. Instead, for lack of a more graceful term, he shot his own face off. And then he fell forward into the dirt. And it had kind of a tourniquet effect. That probably saved his life, or he would have bled out. James was unbelievably still conscious when EMTs arrived. He was rushed to a local hospital to stabilize him, then sent to Stanford. And um, started three years of rhinoplasty. He rewrote the book on uh, facial surgery because nobody had done that much damage to their face and lived. During one of his reformations away from heavy metal, James Vance sold all his Judas Priest records to a used record store in Reno. 37 years later, I walk into Recycled Records just to check. The tab is empty, but they do have a $6 Priest cassette, which I pop into my tape deck on the way to the courthouse. Inside, past the metal detectors, upstairs on a desktop computer, I scroll through the files. Thousands and thousands of digital pages, scanned, stamped, filed, and I find the letter that started the legal process. Frankly, it seems a little stilted, as if James knew what he was writing might be read by somebody other than Ray's mom. But that is who it's addressed to. Dear Anita, I just wanted to send you this picture of Ray holding a 20-inch catfish that my dad caught in Washoe Lake. He was doing some fishing of his own. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. I believe that alcohol and heavy metal music such as Judas Priest led us or even, quote, mesmerized us into believing the answer to life was death. I'm sorry it happened as much, if not more, than anyone else. Sincerely, James Vance. I print it out and add it to my growing pile of court documents. 
Judas Priest was forged in Birmingham, England around 1970. And throughout the next decade, they would define the developing genre of heavy metal. The rise of genres don't happen in a bubble. It's not usually a young savant with a new idea or a new sound. It's a mix of many factors. In this case, it was a mix of live music infrastructure following the Beatles' success in Liverpool and the booming blues rock scene in London that seemed to build a stage for something new in the UK. Then, from the black country, a region so industrialized in the 19th century that pollution turned much of the air and water black, these rock musicians began to experiment with heavier riffs. Likely inspired by Jimi Hendrix, who lived in England for a bit, all the while surrounded by literal metal. And uh, it's about a mile or two mile walk from my home to school. And each day I had to walk past one of these big melting iron metal work factories, you know. And uh, I suddenly had this incredible vivid memory and, and I could see, picture it perfectly and the smell. And you could actually taste it, you know, the, um, all the smoke and all the metal. You could actually taste it as you walked past this building. That singer Rob Halford speaking in a documentary called Dream Deceivers, which we'll get to in a minute. Though it's hard to definitively attribute the phrase, many believe that the name heavy metal is a reference to the factories in this part of the UK. Some of Led Zeppelin was from the same area, and at the same time, fellow pioneer of heavy music, Black Sabbath, was also forming in Birmingham. They explicitly built themselves around the aesthetics of a post-industrial landscape. In interviews, the band members have said that if their music careers didn't take off, they'd likely be working in the factories themselves. Part of the band's success seemed to be the way they captured a specific type of frustration. Young metalheads growing up in cities and suburbs felt like the stability and agency they were promised never came like the economy was pinning them down and vapid social norms were dooming them to a predestined path of conformity. And then there was Judas Priest singer Rob Halford. Just a pasty kid from a working-class background, up on the stage, ascending to tear down the powers that be, to lambast the failings of the world around him. Heavy metal created this sort of power inversion, seizing respect through musical virtuosity and sheer volume. And this seemed to be what Judas Priest was to Ray Belknap and James Vance. He was living in a dead-end place that was not fulfilling to him spiritually, culturally, you know, whatever. And, and, and he was unemployed, he was on drugs, you know. That's what people do when they're you know, when, when they don't have opportunities for fulfillment. This is David Van Taylor. I directed Dream Deceivers, the story behind James Vance versus Judas Priest. Dream Deceivers is an excellent in-depth documentary that came out in 1992. I started this film not at all as a heavy metal or Judas Priest fan. Um, and one of the first things I did was to sit down and like sort of 
work myself into listening to some Judas Priest and particularly this album. And, I, you know, I, I started with music that, that I could relate to more, like uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know. And, and at that point, Judas Priest, you know, when I put it on after Jimi Hendrix was kind of a letdown. Um, but of course, what's not a, what's not a letdown after Jimi Hendrix? But the documentary not only follows the trial, but really tries to understand the teenager's experience. Though it's built on interviews with James Vance after the suicide attempt, the parents, the attorneys, Van Taylor also leaves a lot of space for Priest Vance who explained themselves. I went through a lot of problems like the Vance kid did. You know, my parents did everything they could do for me. My mom was totally against drugs and alcohol. My dad was a drug addict and alcoholic. I couldn't be around so-called normal people because of the way I acted. For David Van Taylor, by the end of the process... The music spoke to me in a much more profound way than it had because I had spent all of that time in part getting inside the heads of James Vance and Ray Belknap and under and and, and the fans who came to the trial um, and understanding like what they saw in the music. The shooting happened in December 1985. James sent the letter to Ray's mom in April of 1986, and that summer, McKenna and Post had filed the lawsuit in civil court. The lawsuit specified this 1978 album, the one that was still spinning on the turntable as the young men lay motionless in the churchyard, as the reason that James and Ray shot themselves. The original complaint ties their actions directly to the song Heroes End. I presume because it includes the line, Why do you have to die to be a hero? It's a shame a legend begins at its end. As James said in a sworn affidavit, But for the music, I would not have attempted to take my life, as per the instructions, in Hero's End. This is the form the case took as it headed through the system, claiming that the lyrics on the record and the lifestyle that the band promoted had caused the suicide pact. McKenna, and to some degree Post, both believed that the case would be dismissed. But then, things took a turn. We were well into the case uh, before the subliminals were discovered. Subliminal messages after the break. The Wind now has merch, and you can get it two ways. One, head to thewind.org and click on Store. You'll find tapes, t-shirts, maps, stickers, or two, you can become a patron. Set up a monthly donation at patreon.com thewind, and you'll get access to that same merch, plus bonus content and the official Wind listener patch. Your support makes this show possible. Thank you. It was um, myself who 
uh, hired uh, a uh, audio guy. He was actually a biologist, but he did sublim. He actually created subliminal uh, recordings himself. He created them for weight loss and quit smoking, and you know he he was in it uh, as an independent guy. And uh, I asked him. McKenna had read about secret messages in advertising back in college. I was a business marketing major for my bachelor's degree, and you 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 learn about subliminal messages and you know the popcorn subliminal in the movie theater, uh, the subliminals in print advertising for cigarettes and alcohol, and so I you know I had a vague overview of subliminals. Though it seemed like a shot in the dark at the time, McKenna, while the original filing made its way through the system, was looking for something that would keep this case from being thrown out. So the case had been going on for months, and we were basically suing based on the lyrics. And that's what we filed on, and that's what we had. So the judge, they had filed a motion to dismiss, saying lyrics are protected by the First Amendment. They had the Ozzy Osbourne uh, case uh, as precedent out of California, and the judge orders all the lawyers to appear, we'll call it Thursday. It's Monday. He says, on Thursday, I want you to all appear in my chambers. I'm going to decide the motion to dismiss. Well, I know what he's going to do. He's going to throw the case out. So before that happened, we had the audio tape that showed the subliminal messages, the do it. And, and it was repeated several times in the song, Do It. The attorneys sent the album-stained class to a biologist named Bill Nikloff. Nikloff moonlighted in subliminal self-help tapes, creating subliminal cassettes out of a studio in Sacramento. After review, Nikloff claimed that the album was packed with hidden messages. And you didn't hear it unless you isolated it. So we walk, I walked in to all the lawyers and the judge, and he started his spiel about, you know, where it was headed. And I said, excuse me, Your Honor, we have brand new evidence in the case. There are subliminals on the album. Subliminals are not protected by the First Amendment. Judge Jerry Carr Whitehead of the Second Judicial Court of Nevada decided that the case would go to trial. That saved the case. Then he said, you know, give us paperwork, uh, legal arguments on subliminals, and we did. Timothy Post remembers this process not quite as a shot in the dark, but as a conversation between McKenna and an old client. My co-counsel did a divorce for uh, Wilson Brian Key, the subliminal expert. And he got to talking to him, and he gave him a book, and he called him, and he said, hey, are there subliminals? He said, well, you better find out. Wilson Brian Key. Remember that name. When McKenna mentioned the popcorn story, referencing this famous claim that a movie theater had once increased concession sales by flashing subliminal messages on the screen, my ears perked up a bit. This incident seems to be in the public awareness and was cited often by Wilson Brian Key, who was one of the most well-known progenitors of the idea of subliminal messages. He was a professor and had several popular books that claimed the media and ad agencies were packing hidden messages into everything. Books like Media Sexploitation and Subliminal Seduction. K 
McKee had settled in northern Nevada later in life to teach at the university. But his books were already taught in many classrooms across the country, and he would travel on the lecture circuit. And uh, tonight we are pleased to have with us our former University of Western Ontario professor, Dr. Wilson Bryant Key. Good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me back. I'm Bill Key, and for the next hour and 15 minutes or so, I'll give you a slideshow. And I'll try to show you examples of some technique. This is a clip of Key speaking in the early 90s at a university in Massachusetts. People who think they think for themselves, and that's almost an obsession in this country. Uh, it's a basic aspect of the so-called democratic uh, uh, tradition. Uh, anybody who lives in a country or a culture where there's $5 billion a year worth of advertising pumped into their brain pan, who thinks they think for themselves, is in a good deal of trouble. Key claimed that the media was hiding references to death and sex, so that the viewer would associate the company's product with primal and profound emotions. But, he said, if you paid close attention, you could bring them to the surface and neutralize the threat. See, you're not supposed to see this stuff if you play the game the way the media has designed the game to be played. In this lecture and his book, Subliminal Seduction, Key offers several examples of his findings. In one magazine ad for gin, he shows a tall glass of clear liquid with a lime overflowing with ice. He points your eye to three of the four ice cubes where he's found the letters S-E-X. To him, this is clear evidence of tampering. He then draws the reader's eye to several faces that he sees in the ice cubes. One, he claims, is a reference to the World War II graffiti character Kilroy. Then, to what he claims is the face of a woman in the ice. And though I can vaguely see the S caused by the silhouette of the lime, and three horizontal lines that could be seen as an E, I do not see the X or the Kilroy, or the woman, and I especially do not see in the reflection of the bottle cap what Key sees. A man's legs and partially erect genitals. Key saw genitals in everything. He claimed the word sex was hidden everywhere, and that people were being secretly exposed to latent homosexuality, and, as he laments in that lecture, interracial cunnilingus. And he seemed very interested in ice cubes. Often he found messages, boobs, and metaphorical representations of his experience of female frigidity. Thinking in terms of male and female, he wrote, which of these ice cubes would be female? The one on the left, of course. The elliptical-shaped chip at the top corner of the left-hand ice cube suggests that something is missing, a portion of the cube's anatomy. Key often seemed to sense his reader's skepticism, and periodically backed up these claims with what he called evidence. He said, for instance, that 90% of the test subjects agreed with his assessment of the gendered ice cubes. But something he never did was explain who the test subjects were, what the experiment was, who conducted it, the science. 
through context clues, you can put together that his experiments seem to have been conducted by him in his university classes by vote. And he never offers documentation. Key, along with the biologist who sold subliminal self-help tapes, would be two of the expert witnesses for the plaintiffs. Judas Priest arrived in Reno in July of 1990. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Please be seated. Court cases can move very slowly. And in the intervening four years since the case was filed, a lot had changed. James Vance and Ray Belknap's cases had merged into one, leaving McKenna and Post as co-counsel. Together, they had narrowed in on the existence of subliminal messages found by Nikloff and Key. CBS Records, the label responsible for Judas Priest, had tried to get the case dismissed, then obfuscated when asked for the master tapes angering the judge. And before the trial started, James Vance died. In the years after the shooting, James struggled with pain and depression, and he was on a litany of medication. He had actually fathered a child after the shooting, but was admitted to the hospital for emotional distress, where he died of an overdose. It was a hot summer day when Rob Halford, Ian Hill, Glenn Tipton, and K.K. Downing, the members of Judas Priest, walked up the courthouse steps in downtown Reno. They were welcomed by a throng of metalheads. Kids in leather and band t-shirts lined the sidewalk with handwritten signs. I was there for the whole thing. Filmmaker David Van Taylor again. And the atmosphere in the courtroom was, you know was mixed. (laughs) Uh, I mean, uh, on the one hand, some of it was quite absurd, and it was a, you know, a media circus, as, uh, you know, the the expression goes. Just to make sure that we're together, there is nothing in the music, the sound effects, or the lyrics that is actionable, because they are constitutionally protected. Ken McKenna and Timothy Post were up against another sharp local attorney, Sue Ellen Fullstone. Fullstone still practices in Reno, but turned down my interview request. Working on behalf of Judas Priest, Fullstone was smart, young, and commanding, and she was joined by some big guns from Los Angeles, hired by CBS. All of this was overseen by Judge Whitehead. So Judge Whitehead, conservative, older, certainly had never listened to a heavy metal song in his life, and uh, we, had, we had the audio system set up in the courtroom and big speakers and a soundboard. At one point, Judge Whitehead, clearly uncomfortable for much of the audio demonstrations, made the audio guy turn the music down. What is on trial is whether there are subliminal messages present, and if so, if they have an effect upon the listener. The plaintiff's case slowly crystallized around a few specific instances of alleged subliminal messaging. First, they had Wilson Brian Key investigate the album cover. He apparently separated the colors and picked out a written message. You know, you you have multiple colored layers to create the cover, and if you undo those, uh, you end up 
very easily seeing the word suicide, actually the word in letters, suicide. It's misspelled, <laughs> but it's suicide, and it's, you're not having to reach. I mean, it's right there visually, no question about it. On the non-subliminal level, visibly, the cover shows a sort of shiny metallic head with a metallic beam or rod piercing it at an angle. So we had the word suicide within the content of the album cover. And then if you look at the album cover, it is a young man with a bullet going through his head. And so it doesn't take much of a leap uh, to appreciate that the album cover connects to the concept of killing yourself uh, with a bullet to the head. If the cover clearly depicted self-harm and the word suicide, it would be protected. But if hidden, it might not. Then there was the meat of the argument. Bill Nikloff, armed with speakers and an early digital audio interface, presented several instances of hidden sonic messages. Subliminal means below our ability to detect. This can take many forms any stimulus that we don't consciously experience. So that can be the way we react to sounds or smells or subtle visual cues without having recollection of noticing them. In popular culture, subliminal stimuli are often presented as backwards phrases. Placing backward sounds in any recording is called backmasking, and it really doesn't work that way. Your brain can't magically decipher whole backwards phrases like this. But backmasking is used in recording for all types of effects. Often a guitar, piano, or the hit of a cymbal will be played backwards to create a sort of swell effect. Artists have also used long strings of backwards messages as an aesthetic choice. So proving backmasking would not be enough for the plaintiffs. And subliminals, hidden lyrics that are subliminal, that enter the subconscious, are actionable under the law. Backward messages, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. The plaintiffs took a sort of scattered approach, saying that there were backwards phrases, plus the album cover, plus what they called punch-ins, which were forward messages hidden in the drumbeats, but Nikoloff started with a few examples of what he claimed were backwards messages. One was in the song, White Heat, Red Hot. I searched diligently and was unable to find the original audio evidence from the case. So I've done my best to recreate Nikoloff's evidence based on his testimony. Here is the first verse forward. And then here is that same moment backwards. (laughs) Nikloff focused in on one line. And what he claimed it said was, fuck the Lord, 
Fuck all of you. The next message he claimed was hidden in the titular song of the album, Stained Class. Here is the second verse forward. The lyrics go, transfixed at deliverance, is this all there is, faithless continuum into the abyss. Here is Wilson Brian Key playing it backwards on a news report. Now when you take that line out and play it backwards, you're getting this. Sing my evil spirit. This is one the plaintiff cited often claiming it said, Sing My Evil Spirit. In the courtroom, Timothy Post could hear it clear as day. And when you listen to a lot of it, people play albums backwards, you go, I know, I didn't hear that. That's It was gibberish. We heard scream my evil spirit. Fuck the Lord. Fuck you all. And, and the hair stands up on the back of your, that wasn't the Beatles. Termion Deadman. I mean, there was some really graphic, and the media asked me uh, almost from day one, why didn't the boys run to a church playground? And it, I think they heard that, uh, fuck the Lord. How do you do that? Go shoot yourself at his house. And I think that had something to do with the connection of going to the church. So we're playing it in the courtroom, these big speakers, there's a full audience, there's media, there's the judge sitting up on the bench, and it gets to the end, and I'm sitting there, of course, and I can tell behind me that there's audience kind of going, oh, you know, oh, ah, oh, you know, and they're whispering to each other, so I know they're hearing it, that, you know, it's come through clearly, the judge is just stone-faced and not giving away any emotion or acknowledgement that he actually hears the subliminals. And I kind of turned and looked back at the judge's secretary, who I knew, and she was sitting uh, in the audience, and she acknowledged, you know, in her body language that she heard the subliminal do it. And I thought, well, that takes care of that. She'll tell the judge she heard it, <laughs> and then he'll, he'll know that he heard it. Bill Nikloff claimed that the backwards messages were just part of a bigger picture. He claimed that there were other methods as well, including what he called punch-ins or embeds. Though the case began by citing the song Hero's End, the tune that became the trial's focal point was a cover called Better By You, Better Than Me. 32 years later, sitting in Timothy Post's office, he pulls the song up on YouTube. Um, you can actually hear it if I show you, if I cue you to it. Uh, 
You can skip forward if you want to, yeah, but man, you're rocking out to this. That's post pointing out where it is. A little bit. But you can you can hear it if you listen closely, and it's do it, do it. And uh, in the courtroom, he had that part uh, highlighted, and you, and when he played it, you looked around the room, and everybody's like, and we just hear what we just heard. What are those do-its doing there? Do-it became the key phrase in the case. Nikloff and the plaintiffs claimed that these initially imperceptible clips were played forward after each line of the course. Seven times in total. So it would go, better by you, better than me, do it. You can tell what I want it to be, do it, and so on. Audio technology has come a long way since 1990. So Nikloff was tirelessly working to separate frequencies and isolate instruments. In this trial, he then got access to the master tapes, which allowed him to play certain audio layers together. I, of course, don't have those master tapes, but thanks to computer, I was able to completely isolate Rob Halford's vocals from this track. So we'll listen for the do-its. Everybody! Everybody knows! Better by you, better than me. You can tell what I want it to be. You can say what I want it can't see. It's better by you, better than me. It's supposed to be right after he says the word me. Nikloff took the sound after the word me, changed the speed a little bit, and then mixed the kick drum back in to get this. During all of this, Judas Priest sat in the courtroom. Four British men who, for the last decade, had been touring mercilessly, playing sold-out shows, traveling the world, releasing record after record, and rarely looking back. And now, they found themselves in a far-off land, as a straight-laced judge listened over and over again to a two-second clip of a cover song that they recorded 12 years previous. They watched as the families of two of their fans grieved, and as an entire courtroom seemed to hear something in their music that they didn't. 
From the outside, it seemed absurd. But inside the courthouse, it was very real. What would it mean if they lost this thing? The rest of the case in part two of Judas Priest on trial. produced by me, Phil Corbett. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron. Head to patreon.com slash thewind. Thanks to Timothy Post, Ken McKenna, David Van Taylor, Tim Moore, and Robert Olson for speaking with me for these episodes. Additional thanks to Thomas, Edith Caulfield, Ben Birkenbein, and Emily Pratt. Sources, links, and full documents at thewind.org. This episode is part of the fourth season of The Wind, which is called Devil Music. Thank you for being here, and keep listening. (laughs) 